Tonight we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And uh, similar to this morning, we're looking, we're honing in on part of the verse, really for what we're thinking about and meditating on tonight. Um, the second part of it, I will read all of verse 20, and I'll reread the part we're going to focus on this evening. Please do keep Romans marked. Uh, we're going to look at some context uh, quite a bit tonight at chapters before and after, and some of the verses surrounding it, but in, uh, including before and after. So uh, keep Romans open. We, we won't really be going to other scriptures tonight so much, but we will do a, a decent amount of page turning in the, in the uh, chapters adjacent to this verse for some context and application. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And what we're going to focus on tonight is the second part of the verse, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I've been thinking about a, a radio program by another Reformed church, Escondido United Reformed Church, um, Boy, if I wasn't trying to think hard about it right now publicly, I'd easily tell you the pastor's name. Uh, but Dr. Godfrey, I know, goes there often, if, if not a member there. And uh, they have a program on the radio. I think it's 5 o'clock now on KPRZ. I highly recommend it if you're driving around. And it's called Abounding Grace. Well, where do you think that name's coming from? Clearly, it's got to be coming from this text, Abounding Grace. In fact, we'll see it's super abounding grace. John Calvin, uh, writing on this verse, says this. He, Paul, is not here describing the whole use and office of the law, but is dealing only with the one part which served his present purpose. So he's not talking about everything about the law, but an aspect of the law as it relates to this purpose. Calvin goes on to say, in order to set forth the grace of God, he tells us that it was necessary that men's destruction should be more clearly revealed to them. Now, this part's the best part. Listen to this. Men were indeed shipwrecked before the law was given. But since they seemed to be surviving, even in their destruction, they were submerged into the deep in order that their deliverance might appear more remarkable when, contrary to human expectation, they emerge from the floods which overwhelm. Just as death will later be followed by resurrection. Wherever the sins of Christians grow, Christ's grace has already exceedingly outgrown it. I give you that as a, a loose idea of what we're focusing on in our text tonight. Wherever the sins of Christians grow, Christ's grace has already exceedingly outgrown it. So, Just like you, I often have a hard time being able to understand how it's possible that my sins are gone and wiped away. Well, Paul is going to make it very clear how that is. And if you have that sense from the law of 
the depth of your sins. And even that sometimes that the law even reveals and makes you almost sin more out of your old man. Let it be used to do what it's supposed to do, to just exhibit before you the far more exceeding grace of Christ that covers all your sins. The propitiation, his blood, for your sins. John Calvin also writes this, and I, I would say in these two quotes, you pretty much have what you need for this text, but I'll go on and have a few other things to share with you. But uh, if you want to review this, or uh, I, I looked at a number of commentaries, and I think Calvin particularly brings a lot of good things together in his exegesis, but also he almost seems like Matthew Henry, especially tonight. And so I encourage you to, to look, at these two, uh, look at his commentaries. not very long on this verse. Uh, but he says this as well. Thus, sin, which men would otherwise cast behind them, not taking it seriously enough, of course. Sin takes possession of their conscience. Paul teaches us that the extent of grace is more strikingly revealed because it is poured out in so copious a flood while sin abounds as not only to overcome the flood of sin, but even to swallow it up. I couldn't help if you can excuse a a silly illustration. I didn't put it in the sermon, but it just keeps coming to me. You know, sometimes you might see a cartoon where there's this fish swimming, and then all of a sudden, much bigger fish, you know. Next thing you know, a big, big old fish, and then he's going like, I thought that one fish was big, but just swallowed up that thing's gone and that that's essentially what christ's blood does your sin just completely swallows it all up it's gone way bigger way bigger though the law shows us how horribly big our sins and terrible they are christ's blood christ's sacrifice is way bigger swallows it up so beloved the message for you is this where your sin much abounds christ's Grace abounds much more. I'm putting it in the present with a sense of the future because that's really the effect of the, of the past of what has happened. right? Where sin did abound, has abounded, uh, Christ's grace, God's grace in Christ, much more has abounded. But it's not just the past, it's that ongoing experience because he is in the Holy of Holies. He has ascended as the high priest and he's applied his blood with an, blood with an everlasting priesthood. It's it's completely done. It's why he has us take the Lord's Supper to remember the effect of his sacrifice once and for all it is finished. Again, the message for you, pretty much reflecting the verses, where your sin much abounds, Christ's grace abounds much more. Your sin much abounds everywhere. That's part of the text. We won't overlook it. It's, in fact, what sets up the, the glorious part of it. Your sin much abounds everywhere. And frankly, I pray that the Lord will convict you and me much more than we really do think it does or take it seriously. R.C. Sproul on this text says, You notice when you give your kids more rules, uh, they often are enticed to break them. Uh, the very rules you're giving, they're enticed to break them and even be worse. And more often... Because it's our nature. He, he gives us this, you know, we, we all do that. We're all like rebellious children towards God when his law is given. We become more aware when we get God's law and then more tempted and more sinful because of it. 
We're in a worse state than Adam and Eve before the fall. We're not able not to sin. That's not even a possibility. And more rules and more of the law given to us in detail after the fall simply invite and entice more rebellion. And we do. And we show our terrible sinfulness. John Calvin puts it this way. When lust is checked by the restraints of the law, it is all the more stimulated. It is a natural tendency in man to strive for that which is forbidden. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, we know that about ourselves, don't we? As much as we want to love his law, uh, there's part of us that even as we hear it, how can I get out of it? How can I look at a bell curve? I, mean, I don't think we articulate that, but we, we just have a, an old man in us still that we've got to keep killing that. When we hear the law, we're not responding properly to it. And uh, even those restraints entice us to sin. And you might feel like, how can that be? You know, God doesn't tempt us, but there's a purpose and an effective law in part to, it shows us our sin and even shows how sinful we are because our response in our old man, and, and before we're Christians is really the big issue, our response to God's law is to just want to break it. And we do more and more when we hear it. And it shows how sinful we are. And if that's true before the fall, when they weren't sinners, but they rebelled against God's command, how much more afterward? Sin abounded. Sin abounded. And, of course, we would say presently abounds. The Greek for the word abounded is increases, grows. Not just that it's everywhere. It's growing. We're depraved and we can grow in degree of our depravity. And we do, and we especially do, until we're in Christ in response to the giving of God's good holy law. And that's the purpose of the law, in part here in the text. Not only does it further expose, but it even increases our sins to further expose how sinful we are. The depth of our depravity. To expose our total, total depravity that only increases by degree and thus shows our need for a mighty Savior. John Murray, commenting on this text, points out that this is in the context of the comparison of the type and the anti-type, Adam, the first Adam, and the second Adam, Christ. Now remember, typology uh, isn't a direct comparison. It's mostly a comparison of the type and how much more so the reality that the type is pointing to. And he points us back to verse 19. Let's look at that together. And I was recalling, I think this might be Olivia's favorite verse. If it's not, it's similar to other things in in this text. And uh, as she said, it's really a summary of the whole Bible and gospel. Romans 5, 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And he's, 
he's pointing out the comparison and yet the contrast of the topology of the first Adam and the second Adam. We need to recognize that with the text. And so therefore, the law of Moses is in view with one of its applications to reveal the multiplications and varied and aggravated violations of original sin in our actual transgressions. Murray points that out. Uh, The law of Moses comes to, to really put it in front of our faces even more. Original sin happens with Adam and Eve. We know we're all sinning. But then when the law of Moses comes, it's just really put out there. This is my holy standard, and sin is the transgression of the law. And we just recognize by omission and commission how far short we come of the glory of God in our sins. It's like Moses just kind of brings down in front of us when we want to kind of keep it behind us. That's what's being talked about here. Adam has fallen. We're talking about original sin and how much we need Christ, the second Adam. And to really drive that home, God brings out the law, among other reasons, to show us how sinful we are, including by the very response of ourselves to God's law in instinctively breaking it, deliberately violating it. And that old man in us still wants to do that. Sin abounded. It increases. Charles Hodge says, The great design of the law in reference to justification is to produce the knowledge and conviction of sin. The introduction of the law was the increase of sin. This result is to be attributed partly to the fact that by enlarging the knowledge of the rule of duty, responsibility was proportionably increased, according to chapter 4, verse 15. And... Partly to the consideration that the enmity of the heart is awakened by its operation and transgressions actually multiplied agreeably to chapter 7, verse 8. Let me read those two parts by themselves and let's look at those two scriptures he references because I know that's a lot without having it in front of your eyes. So Charles Charles Hodge says this. The result of actually increasing our sin and our sinfulness. He says the result is to be attributed partly to the fact that by enlarging the knowledge of the rule of duty, responsibility was proportionably increased according to chapter 4, verse 15. Look at chapter 4, 15. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Not that we're not sinners and there's no transgression. He talks about earlier, right, in chapter 2, the work of the law is on everyone's heart, right? We all know there's a creator. We all know his law, the work of his law. Uh, But there's an effect here that in verse 15 of chapter 4, the law worketh wrath. The law uh, is why we are condemned. It condemns us. We don't measure up to it. Transgression of the law is sin. Where there is no law, there's no transgression in the sense that when you don't have the law, I mean, you can't really claim ignorance, but there's less of a sense, right? Like if I'm driving down a road and I don't know what the speed limit is, I, I'm not really sure. I might be, I'm trying, maybe I'm violent, maybe I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think I might be, you know, but I don't know. Then I see the sign on the road and now I know. And now I know that as I go by it and I didn't slow down, now I'm just deliberately violating it. That's the idea. 
of what the law does bringing out transgression before our face. Or as, can't get away from it with your smartphones now, right? They usually tell you somehow they know what the speed limit is, whether or not there's a sign and you do or don't. So you know all the time it's right before you. And that's the effect of the law. He goes on to say this. uh, The other aspect is partly to the consideration that the enmity of the heart is awakened by its operation and transgressions actually multiplied agreeably to chapter 7, verse 8. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 8 together. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Sin in me took occasion of the commandment to make me sin. That's the sinful response of sinful man. When we hear the commandment, let's break it. You know, what does Augustine talk about in his confessions? He talks about, uh, I think I've seen someone else write about this for themselves too, maybe an early Puritan, but uh, Augustine is, maybe I shouldn't say famous, but infamous for confessing in his confessions uh, to God. He writes to God, most of it's like a diary, just talking to God, looking back over his life. And he says, you know, uh, me and my friends, we stole pears out of the neighbor's yard off his tree, not because we wanted them, just for the joy of stealing them. They were there, and the fun of it was stealing them. We didn't need them, didn't want them. We simply did it for the joy of breaking that commandment. And uh, that's us, too. There is a joy in sinning, a sinful one. There is a, an excitement and almost an entertainment of what you might get away with. There, uh, there's something about that. And we're all in danger. And the effect of all of that is that we must confess we are abounding in sin. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Missing the mark of God's perfect law is sin. And then Romans 6.23, the first part, and the wages of sin is death. We're talking eternal damnation. And we all need to fess up and recognize that and fess up to the effect of that in us as non-Christians and even as Christians, that old man that we still have to keep beating down and killing. And where is this happening? Everywhere. But where sinned abounded, grace much more did abound. Where everywhere. It's where are we not sinning? Where in us total depravity means in every extent, right? Body and soul. And it can grow in degree, but it's affected everywhere. It's like the ink was spilled and it has seeped through the entire piece of paper. But more ink keeps getting spilled in response to God's law, and it just keeps getting blacker and darker. Everywhere, sin abounds. And so, beloved, is not Romans 7, verses 7 through 24, your testimony. Let's look at it, Romans 7, beginning with verse 7. Can you not relate to this? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, 
but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That is what he wants you to say in response to verse 20 of chapter 5. Sin abounds. The holy good law shows that it's good and holy, but my response to it shows how wicked I am and depraved. Without Christ. And even in Christ, how wicked that old man still is in me. Sin abounds. You know how wretched you are, I trust. In your old self outside of Christ. Preaching about sin and death and repentance is so important. So that we entirely turn to Jesus. The purpose of the law, in part, is to expose your sins and your sinfulness by sinning more when you hear the law. But it is so that you completely turn to Jesus Christ. Romans 7 
doesn't end with verse 24. Look at verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Let's go to verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's a deliberate comparison so that we can see the contrast, the amazing contrast. The reason to help us appreciate and recognize and confess the depravity of our old man and the depth of our sins is that we recognize the incapability of being right with God and ourselves, So that we would only cry out to Christ and we would only cling to Christ and live his abundantly gracious life. And live life in his abundant grace. You see, Christ's grace abounds much more everywhere. Your sin much abounds everywhere, but Christ's grace abounds much more everywhere. Once you see how dirty a room is, you recognize how much you need to get a great cleaner. And you appreciate how a very powerful and efficient product, effective product works to get rid of everything. Sometimes we'll go through different things and we'll ask advice. Do you know a certain thing that will really get this thing clean? And when you get that clean and nothing else would do it, you're like, I love this product, right? This is how we should respond. I love Christ's blood. Nothing could cleanse me. But look what the blood of Christ has done. Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Of course, we have in view, why is our wool so scarlet? Because of our blood, of our sins, our blood guilt. How does it become so white? Because of the blood of Christ. It's a startling contrast. It's incredible cleansing. This is the idea. God's grace doth much more abound. Where? Everywhere and many times over ad infinitum. Grace did much more abound. The Greek word begins, it's just one word, uh, much more abound. It's just one word in the Greek. And um, it starts with the word hyper or hooper. And so it could be translated super abounds. Grace superabounds. I don't feel like I can give it justice. And I, I appreciate, I, uh, after I finish the sermon, as I like to do, I, 
I try to lay down and rest my eyes, and I put on, uh, usually from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can listen to messages by J. Montgomery Boyce, but also um, Dr. Barnhouse. And I decided to see what he had on today. And wouldn't you know, some of his most recent messages were this text and verse 21. I said, thank you, Lord. And one thing that I was impressed with, I wasn't able to hear at all, is he said, I, I've just really been waiting for this verse, preaching through Romans. I've just really been anticipating it. And it's, I think I get the sense, and he says, I noticed all the writers say the same thing. It's like the sense of our sin and the sense of Christ's grace. And what's being said here is, I don't know that I can really give you the fullness of this, that seems to be what he was expressing more than anything. And I feel that way too, but I trust the Lord will, will get it through by the Spirit. J. Montgomery Boyce, being quoted in an article I found on this verse, said, uh, the idea of much more abound, it means to overflow. More than enough. And it just keeps overflowing. The grace is way more than the sin, as big as and horrible and uh, tremendously abounding as the sin. The grace is so much more so. And that's what you and I need to hear again and again. And then he summarizes the whole argument in chapter up into this verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. Let let me read verse 20, our, our text leading into it. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. John Calvin Uh, speaks of verse 21 saying this, As soon, therefore, as grace of Christ begins to prevail in individuals, the region, or excuse me, the reign of sin and death ceases. Let me read that again. As soon, therefore, as grace of Christ begins to prevail in individuals, the reign of sin and death ceases. The new man is in you, and he is growing. The grace of Christ has covered over your sins. And the reign of Christ has begun in you. As we think about what we studied in the Shorter Catechism last week, uh, the kingly office of Christ. He subdues us to himself. He rules us. He defends us. He constrains his and our enemies. The particular part is he subdues us. It makes us a willing people, Psalm 110, about the Messiah. And he has begun a good work in us. And what does Philippians say? It's going to continue until the day of Christ Jesus. It will continue have its complete effect. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Later, he says, right? For it is God who is working in you both to will and do of his, his good pleasure. Sovereign grace, almighty grace from the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God has been worked in you by the Holy Spirit. 
It cannot be stopped. The effect of it is done. Your sins are forgiven. You are already reigning with him. You are already with him, seated at his right hand in the heavenlies with him. It will be consummated at his return in the body and your bodies being raised in uh, spiritual bodies to reign with him forever. This is a subjective experience, but the thing is we want to remember our subjective experience can be tainted by all kinds of things, including our old man, but it is a subjective experience that will grow. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8, testifies to your spirit. You are the children of God. Unless you are loved by the Father. But it's based on an objective reality. It's based on the reality that the blood of Christ is superabounding, flooding over and engulfing and making no more to be seen your sins. How are other scriptures speak of it? God throws his sins behind your back. He throws them into the depths of the sea. We know that God knows everything. It's not as if he truly forgets, but he speaks in anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms as, as if he forgets because the effect of the sin that he should remember it against you is gone. Gone in Christ. Superabounding is its effect over your abounding sin. As Paul earlier proved in chapters 1 through 3, we are all done in by sin. We all need to be dug out by Jesus. And we're dug out by his death, burial, and resurrection being raised in him in faith. The point of the law being expressed tonight, again, there are different aspects of the reasons for the law. The point of the law, especially if we are not in Christ, is to drive us to Christ. And then the point of the law is to keep reminding us to go to Christ and to keep being converted more and more, dying more to the old self, living to the new, uh, a way of life for the redeemed. But it's to drive us to Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and 24. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You see, that's what he's been driving at, and not by works. So none of us are trying to justify ourselves by our quote-unquote good works before God. When we recognize that even our righteousnesses are filthy rags before God. This was Martin Luther's big hang up. For a long time, it's why he just would confess all the time. Because he was a lawyer, as were so many of the early church fathers and reformers like Calvin. He was a lawyer, and so he understood God's law, and so he understood he had no hope. There is no way all of my sins, he understood, little, big, all of there is no way I can make this right. And at times he said he even hated God, because how can I ever be made right with you? Until he came to the verse Paul quotes from Habakkuk and Romans, the just shall live by faith. Or as I've shared before, my Greek professor said, really the flow and effect of it is by faith the just shall live. 
the law just shows us and exposes our horrible need for something, someone to save us. And that's the point. Jesus saved. Jesus alone saves by faith alone. Grace alone for the glory of God alone as testified to us in the word of God alone. Again, the point of our text is that the extent of sin is shown to be total and worsening in degree in response to God's holy law. But it is so that we forsake our own quote-unquote good works and see how much more incredibly overwhelming in its extent and depth is God's grace that covers our sins super abundantly. John Murray writes this in his commentary. We must never abstract the foregoing purpose served by the law from the more abundant provisions of grace. The apostle construes the multiplying of trespass which the giving of the law promoted as magnifying and demonstrating the superabounding riches of divine grace. The more transgression is multiplied and aggravated, the greater is the grace that abounds unto justification, and the more the luster of that grace is made manifest. The surpassing efficacy and glory of God's grace are stressed by the superlative, superabounded. Charles Hodge says, similarly, the gospel of the grace of God has provided itself much more efficacious in the production of good. Excuse me. The gospel of the grace of God has proved itself much more efficacious in the production of good than the sin in the production of evil. The fact, therefore, of the triumph of grace over sin is expressed in the clearest manner. God has great grace and plenteous mercy. We've seen those scriptures in previous sermons this year. God's mercy endureth forever and is new every morning. 1 John 1 verse 9 thus promises, If we confess our sins, he is faithful And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, a disclaimer is in order, and Paul gives it in our text. Don't misunderstand and misuse the law as Christians saved from its condemnation. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Well, as we end chapter 5 with our text, what shall we say then? He goes on. He has a little bit of a, of a warning here. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now look at verses 11 to 15 to drive the point home. Like guys, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. 
Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. If that's your response, then you didn't get what he said, because your desire is to be freed of sin and sinning. He wants to go out of his way. Don't become an antinomian. You are not under the law as being condemned, but you are still within its command to love. And especially so because of the love of God in Christ graciously given to you. I share with you a section of our membership class a while back related to the law. And chapter 6 here of Romans and what I just read. When antinomians quote the following verses, they only reference the italicized part while ignoring the underlined. And I'll try to bring that to you in how I say it. Romans six fourteen to 15. For sin shall not have dominion over you. They don't mention that part. They don't quote that part. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. And that's often used to say, I'm under the grace, not the law. I'm not, I don't have to worry about the Sabbath. I don't have to worry about worship. I don't have to worry about my sins. You know, I got to get out of hell free card. Woohoo! Don't go to jail. That's not what he's saying when he says we're not under the law but under grace. The first part is sin shall have no dominion over you. The effect of not being under the law but under grace is sin no longer has dominion over you. He goes on, what then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. They don't quote, shall we sin? God forbid. Just, oh, we're not under law, but under grace. Oh, you know, that's how it's usually done. Pick the parts you like, leave the rest for scraps, and go about your business. But Paul is driving home. You better be concerned about your abounding sin and be so pleased and thankful for God's superbounding grace. But the point of it is that you can grow in grace and sin less, not have an excuse to sin and sin more. The whole point of the law is that you sin more just in response to its holiness, showing how unholy you are. So don't sin and use grace as your excuse. Important disclaimer. I go on to share a little more from the membership class. Horatius Bonar points out that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, Paul says he's not under the law uh, in verse 20, but nor was he without the law, but he was in the law or subject to the law. And he explains that the Greek word enemas, he talking about like within the law, he says a Christian man then is enemas, a man not under the law, but within the circle of the law. To shrink from the law looks very like loving the darkness rather than the light, very like an unwillingness to be instructed in the ways of righteousness, he says. And I, want, I remind you also that the Westminster Larger Catechism 97 explains that we are neither justified nor condemned under the law in Christ. 
We don't justify ourselves by the law, but in Christ we are no longer under its condemnation. Horatius Bonar goes on also to explain, that law thus doubly established is now for us, not against us. We are not men delivered from service, but delivered from one kind of service, and by that deliverance introduced into another That is another kind of service. As God says in the Ten Commandments in the preface, I am the Lord thy God that have brought thee out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, here's how you're going to live the Ten Commandments. In freedom, in the liberty of holiness, having been made holy. You're no longer under the bondage of sin, but you are liberated to walk in God's law of liberty without fear for failing and falling. For Christ has already lifted us up into the heavenlies where he sits on his throne and our lives are hid there with him at God's right hand. Colossians 3. Present reality, one day face to face. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, amen. Infinitely abundant and overflowing, overwhelming grace. If you heard what he said in the first part of the verse. To bring out and draw out God's super abounding grace. R.C. Sproul and Charles Hodge point out that the use of abound and super abound is not comparative. But superlative. Again, the type, Adam, original sin and then its effects. The antitype, Christ, his forgiveness of sin and its effects. It's superlative. It's like 180 degrees with repentance, right? You're going this way, now you're going this way. You know, you're on your way to hell outside of Christ. You're on your way to heaven in Christ. Your only response to God's law outside of Christ is to want to break it. And you do. By Christ working in you in the Holy Spirit, you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit or quench him. You feel the sense of wanting to cooperate and grow the fruits of the Holy Spirit within you. And you respond with love. You grieve like Paul in Romans 7. I want to do it. I still struggle so often. Don't do the very thing I want to do. But now at least you want to. Whereas before you're like, I don't want to. Don't tell me what to do. That's God's grace working in you, and it will have its full effect at the consummation of his kingdom when he comes back on his white horse and gives you a new spiritual body fit for the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth for eternal life in the very presence of God, eating across the table from the Lord Jesus Christ himself at the great supper of the Lamb, which you get a taste of weekly in the Lord's Supper. You might say, and and this is, I I wish I could have thought of something better, but just to try to give you the effect. Your sins are like the Mississippi River. But God's grace in Christ is like Niagara Falls. And I have in view what the Renners just shared about their experience of the incredible, overpowering, incredibly awe-inspiring sense of those falls. Or you could say it's even more than that. It's Victoria Falls, which is a lot bigger. Or really you should say God's grace is like Victoria Falls and Niagara Falls combined. 
For in Jesus you have been given complete and total victory over sin and death, past, present, and future. And so, dearly beloved, always remember, where your sin much abounds, and it does, Christ's grace abounds much more. It's not just your reality dealing with your past, and it is. It's got the continual present effect into the future. You're going to still have these sins. You're going to sinfully in your old man respond to God's holy law, rebelling and not wanting to do it, and then breaking it. And you're going to struggle to be, feel like you can show your face before him again or come before his means of grace and his people. And so you've got to say, yes, indeed, my sins abound. But Lord Jesus, your grace superabounds and consumes them all. Where your sin much abounds, Christ's grace abounds much more. Don't you forget it. And don't you stop praising him. For his amazing grace. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we do confess before you our sins abound. And even our old man, we are redeemed in Christ. And we, we know these things. And yet uh, we relate with Paul in Romans 7. And we cry out to you, who will rescue us? And then we say, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for your superabounding grace, for the blood of the everlasting covenant, for you who are the propitiation of all our sins. Remind us that we have a great high priest in heaven so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, seeking mercy in our time of need. And we thank you as we have approached you this evening for your superabounding grace, having poured all over us. Refresh, renew, cleanse us, O Lord. And may you forbid that we would go out and sin in response. Instead, help us to hear that you do not condemn us. Go and sin no more. And how glorious is your grace that we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth with our new spiritual bodies at the resurrection. We will never sin again. What a glorious kingdom we will enjoy forever. In the meantime, Lord, bless us and strengthen us in our warfare against sin. Give the new man victory over the old. Help us to build new habits over time. And help us not listen to our adversary and accuser, but to our advocate. To our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, as he ministers to us as prophet, priest, and king, telling us we are completely forgiven, reminding us he has secured our eternal salvation, and holding his scepter, golden scepter of mercy over us with the authority to forgive sin as the Son of God. We bow before you and we worship you as we will in heaven around the throne and of the Lamb. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.